Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you that the new book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, is going to be available this Hanukkah. It's been very, very widely received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to marriage therapists, people who work with young couples, and the response has been really, truly amazing. Please look for it at the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, or your local Jewish bookstore. Hashem says to Avram Yadur, Teda, you should know, Ki lo lahem. Your people, your descendants, your lineage will be Gerim. They'll be exiled in a land that's not theirs. And they'll be slaves, they'll be tortured, they'll be oppressed. But when they leave, Yetzu Brechush Gadol, they will leave with great wealth. And this was a promise that Hashem made to Avram, that two things were to happen. One is, his people, his offspring, were to go to Mitzrayim, they were going to be slaves there. <clears throat> but when they would leave, they would leave Baruch Gadol with tremendous wealth. And the Chumash explains to us how the story played out. You can almost watch Hashem orchestrating the events behind the scenes. <clears throat> Yaakov goes to Eretz Canaan after the long events by Lovan. He now has all of his children. And <clears throat> at that point, Yosef is 17 years of age. And Yaakov appoints Yosef to be the head of all of the Shvatim. Even though Yosef was younger, he was Ben Zekunim. <clears throat> Rashi brings down the Targum. That means that Yosef was a Chacham, a brilliant person. All of the Torah that Yaakov had learned in the Shiva Shem for 14 years, he didn't sleep in a bed. All of the Torah he had given over to Yosef at the tender age of 17. And he gave Yosef this Kesonitz Pasim, this coat of many colors that was a sign of leadership. He was appointing Yosef to be the leader of all the brothers. He saw in Yosef leadership qualities, he saw brilliance, he saw a tremendous tamachachim, and he wanted Yosef to be the head of the brothers. In any case, the brothers did not interpret that well, and they assumed from what Yosef was doing, that he was actually trying to get them killed, and he was to be the sole progenitor of the Jewish nation, and that was how they understood Yosef's plot. And in fact, they decided, sat at the Beisdin, and they paskined Yosef Lemisa. They saw him as a rodef. They saw him as one who was trying to kill him. And they were going to kill him. Instead, they sold him to the Midianim, sold him to the Shemaelim, and Yosef ends up in Mitzrayim. Now, for the first year of Yosef's stay in Mitzrayim, he was merely tortured. He was tortured by the constant oppression of his mistress. The Potiphar's wife was attempting to seduce him. And for an entire year, he resisted. In the end, she tried to actually physically accost him. He runs out of the house. She has his begotten, and she claims that he tried to rape her. Fotifar knows that his wife is lying, but he can't be embarrassed. He throws Yosef into the prison. And Yosef remains in that bar for 12 years. 12 years, he doesn't see the light of day. For 12 years, he's in the dark. And Paro has his dream. And by in a bar, Yosef is taken out of the bar, and immediately, miraculously, he interprets Paro's dreams perfectly, and he gives Paro advice, and Paro points him viceroy to Mitzrayim. Now again, very unusual circumstances to go from a slave in a pit of 12 years to now being on top of Mitzrayim, Mokshel Becholot, he's literally the ruler, the shalit on everything there. In any case, he marries, has two children, and in that state he remains for nine years. The first seven years of the famine... Then the next, I'm sorry, the first seven years of plenty, then the first two years of the famine, 
At that point, Yaakov, who's in Eretz Yisrael, hears that there's Shever in Mitzrayim, there's food in Mitzrayim. So Yaakov sends down the brothers to go buy food. As soon as the brothers show up, Yosef recognizes them. They don't recognize Yosef. <clears throat> when they sold him, he didn't have a beard, he was younger. Now he's 39 years of age. They didn't recognize him, but he immediately recognized him. And we go through the whole charade, the stealing of the money, stealing of the gvia, the coast, etc. <clears throat> and finally Yosef says, Ani Yosef, Odevichai. Yaakov comes down, and in the end, Yosef fulfilled that dream. Because the Pesach tells us that all of the wealth, <clears throat> all of the wealth of Mitzrayim was given to Paro. Because in the end of the famine, there was nothing to eat. Yosef gathered all of the money that was found in Mitzrayim, and he brought it, based to Paro, he brought it to Paro's house, so that all of the wealth was there, so that 210 years later, when the Jewish people will leave, they'll leave Berchush Gadol, because all of the wealth of all the surrounding areas, probably most of civilization, was gathered into the house of Paro. Towards the end, Paro owned all the land, and the taxes that you had to pay to him was 20%, Paro was wealthy beyond any description, beyond any figure, and all of that wealth was taken by the Jewish people when we left Mitzrayim, and Hashem's plan that He promised Avram Avinu decades, hundreds of years earlier was fulfilled, the Jewish nation left with great wealth. And the story is interesting, and the story is very, very powerful, but here's a very important observation. Yaakov sends the brothers down to Mitzrayim. Yosef sees them, immediately recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Here's the question. How did Yosef know that the brothers were there? There were thousands and thousands of people, all of Mitzrayim and all of Eretz Canaan, everyone in that entire region came to Mitzrayim to buy wheat. How did Yosef know that the brothers were there? And as soon as bothered by that problem, and the Surah explains that if you read the Pasuk carefully, you'll see exactly how Yosef knew when the brothers came down to Mitzrayim. The Pasuk says, Yosef was shalit ala oritz. Yosef was the ruler over the land, hua mashbir. He was the quartermaster, the one who gave out the food. Points out the Surah, those two jobs are contradictory. The shalit is the ruler, the magistrate, the king, the viceroy, huge, huge honorable position, tremendous power. The mashbir is a quartermaster. He's the guy who gives out the food. You go in line, he's the one who hands the soup out. He's the one who gives out the bags of food. How is it possible that Yosef had those two positions? If he's the shalit, if he's the ruler, he's not the mashbir, he's not the quartermaster. <clears throat> Explains the sunnah, that's exactly what the Torah is telling us, how he knew that the brothers were there. Because you see, Yosef, explains the Surah, did not trust the Mitzrim. The Mitzrim were devious, they were deceitful. And Yosef realized that all of the wealth of all of the surrounding areas belonged to Paro. All of the wheat was to be sold. It was a huge, huge amount of money. And Yosef did not trust the Mitzrim. They were devious, they were deceitful, they'd cheat, they'd pocket some of the money, they'd skim off the top. And because Yosef didn't trust the Mitzrim, there was no wheat sold in Mitzrayim that didn't have his signature on it. He sat over every single transaction, signed on every document, either with his hand writing or with his signature, but there was no bar, no wheat sold in Mitzrayim that Yosef did not personally sign on because he didn't trust the Mitzrayim. All his money belonged to Paro, and that is why he 
understood that the brothers came. Since he signed every document, as soon as the brothers came to buy wheat, they had to appear in front of him. He recognized who they were, immediately understood, and they don't recognize him. And that's the sort of explains how it is that they knew the brothers were there. And this sort of answers an important problem, but creates a much bigger problem. And that is, why would Yosef busy himself with such trivial matters? Meaning, okay, look, I got it. All of this money should go to Paro. Meaning there's a huge, huge amount of wealth. All of the wheat of all of seven years has been gathered in these silos, and everyone now is desperate, and everyone is going to trade their gold for wheat. I got it. And that money should go to Paro. But Yosef, with all due respect, there are checks and balances. You could set up a system. You could have audits. Okay, maybe the midstream aren't reliable. And maybe only 80%, 90% of the money will get to Paro. But that's not your problem. Paro's people, you put them in charge, you create systems, you monitor them. But what do you have to sit there over every sale itself because you don't trust them? Number one, Paro is going to be phenomenally wealthy whether you audit it perfectly or not. So instead of getting the 100% or get 90%, he'll be wealthy beyond description. Paro is not a tzadzkal, he's not a great tzaddik. You're going to make him phenomenally wealthy anyway. Why did Yosef have to sit there signing every document to ensure the fact that Paro gets every penny? <clears throat> that doesn't seem appropriate. And the Balturin points out that it really wasn't covered on Malchus because it's not appropriate for the viceroy. No one did anything in Mitzrayim without Yosef's approval. Yosef was the ruler over Mitzrayim. As Paro said, I will be above you only in name, but every edict, every issue came to Yosef's door. He was the ruling monarch. He was the ruling power. It's not appropriate for him to sit there on every sale of wheat, to sit there signing every document. It's a bazillion, it's an embarrassment to the Malchus. But even more than that, didn't Yosef have better things to do at his time? He was a tremendous tamachacham. All of the Torah that Yaakov learned for those 14 years in Yeshiva Shem, every turned to Yosef, when Yosef was just 17 years of age. Yosef could have been learning, could have been doing much better things. Why is he wasting his time just to make sure that a little bit of the wheat, a little bit of the money doesn't get stolen from Paro? It doesn't sound appropriate. It sounds very difficult to understand. And to understand the answer to this, let me share with you an interesting observation. A number of years ago, I was very friendly with the Balchuva, who told me that he was having a difficulty. And it actually was causing a bit of Shalom Bayez problem. His difficulty was he was brought up on McDonald's. And he became a Balchuva in his early 20s. And since that time, obviously, he kept kosher. He got married, married a from girl, and they're raising a proper family. But as it comes out, his big nesayin is McDonald's. And it's not often, but every once in a while, he caves, and he finds himself in a McDonald's with a Big Mac, and fries. Listen, he's working on it, hopefully he'll get there, <clears throat> but right now that's his Nisayan, and from time to time he finds himself in that situation. It created quite a Pachalan bias because his <clears throat> issue, because his wife wasn't too happy with this, etc., etc. Okay, very nice. Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Let's say our friend finds himself in McDonald's with a Big Mac and a fries. Here's the question. What bracha does he make on the Big Mac? Does he wash? Are the fries tuffled to the Big Mac? And what about the cheese? Is the cheese tuffled to the... What brachas does he make? How does he wash? What should he do with that Big Mac? Okay, so it's a halacha mufureshes. It's clear in Shulchan Aruch. He doesn't make any bracha. Because if he makes a bracha, he's compounding his problem. That's not a blessing. It's disgusting. It's not bad enough you're eating tray food 
if you make a bracha over it, you're actually being mavazi, embarrassing Hashem, you're using the name of Hashem in vain, and you're adding insult to injury, you're adding more averus to your problem. And Allah is, you eat that Big Mac without a bracha, you eat it, work on it afterwards, but you do not make a bracha. Okay, that's quite interesting. But it's also interesting to note that the Gemara tells us the very same thing about stolen food. Let's assume you stole food. What bracha do you make on it? Again, the Gemara says the exact same thing. It's disgusting. How are you going to use God's name on stolen food? God hates gezel. God hates thievery. You're going to make a blessing. It's a bracha levatala. You compound your vera. If you're eating stolen food, you don't make a bracha. But then the Mishra makes another point that's quite, quite interesting. He says, what about a mitzvah? Let's say you're doing a mitzvah on stolen time. Let's assume for a minute that I work for a boss, and I'm paid by the hour, and I do a big mitzvah. Instead of doing what I should be doing, I maybe I make a shidduch, or maybe I save somebody's life, or who knows what I do. I did a huge mitzvah during my boss's time. Explains Mr. Sharm that is not a mitzvah, that's an avera. <clears throat> not only is it stealing, but the mitzvah is baba avera and doesn't count for anything. Why? Because Hashem wants us to be yosher, to be straight. Hashem wants us to be honest, and if you're working for somebody, your obligation is to work for that person for exactly the stipulated time in the exact manner that you agreed to. Now, <clears throat> in our day and age, it's a little bit different than it was back in the time of the Gemara, but Mesut Sharm brings down an example from the Gemara to show us quite how far this concept goes. It's a Gemara Makas that discusses Abba Chilkia. Abba Chilkia was the tzaddik of the generation, he was the grandson of Chunia Magil, and he was known as the rain maker. Remember, this is Eretz Yisrael, <clears throat> it's an agricultural society, if there's a drought, then everyone starves. Rain is very, very fickle, sometimes it rains, sometimes it doesn't, Whenever there was a drought, they would go to Abba Chilkia, they would ask him to daven, he would daven, and it was known, it was given, it would start raining. He was literally the rainmaker, a tzaddik, of Ador, incredible person. In any case, Gemara tells us that one time there was a drought, and the Rabbanan sent a zug, they sent a pair of chachamim to Abba Chilkia and asked him to daven, that Hashem should make it rain. They come to Abba Chilkia's house, and he's not there. They go out to the field, and they see him working. And they walk over to him and say, Shalom Aleichem. He doesn't stop working. He keeps working and working and working. At the end of the day, he walks back to his house. The Chachamim stood off a little bit in the distance, and they followed him. When he comes into his house, he says to his wife, The Chachamim are here. I know why they're here. They've come to ask us to daven it should rain. Let us precede them. and Let us go up to the roof and daven before they ask us, so he and his wife go up to the roof, they, she goes to her side of the roof, he goes to his, they each daven, and very shortly thereafter the rain clouds begin forming, it begins raining, they come down, and the two chachamim are sitting there, Abba welcomes them in and says, how can I help you? They say, we came to ask you uh, to daven, it should rain. Abba says, Baruch Hashem, you don't need Abba it's raining already, look at that. At which point the chachamim say, we know why it's raining. We know it's because you daven, but we have one question. Why is it that we came to greet you, and we said Shalom Aleichem, and you didn't even turn to greet us? You kept working and working. Why is that? And he answered as follows, I'm a day worker. I'm paid for my day's wages, 
it would have been gazel, it would have been stealing for me to stop what I'm doing to have a conversation with you. So with all due respect, gentlemen, I apologize, <clears throat> but that's what I had to do. Now let me point out something very important. Abba Chilkia was the tzaddik of a generation, to the extent that he dominated and it rained. Clearly what he did was right. Our times are different, and <clears throat> it's certainly considered normal employment, that you have a chance to say hello, that's not considered gezel, but in his understanding, he was hired for the day, and day's labor meant a day's labor, stopping to converse, stopping to have a conversation, was stealing from his boss, he wouldn't do it, and the Mesut brings us as an example of integrity, of honesty. And if you'd like to understand Yosef, that's exactly what was going on over here. Yosef was given a charge, he was given a mission, he is Paro's viceroy. His job is to worry for the welfare of Paro. His employment is to benefit Paro. Yosef saw a situation that was very difficult. There was no people there that he could trust. There was no one that he felt were reliable. Yes, he could have set up checks and balances. Yes, he could have had an audit system, but it would have only caught 80%, 90%. It wouldn't have caught all, and all of this money belonged to Paro. My job is to serve Paro. Paro may not be a tzaddik. He may not be a great person. I may not even warrant so much wealth, but the bottom line is, this is my employment, and this is my responsibility, and Yosef sat there signing every single document, acting in a manner that was really not covered for the Malchus, <coughs> spending a tremendous amount of time. Why? Because he was discharging his responsibility, and that was his job, <coughs> that was what he was being paid to do, and he did it with integrity, with honesty. And I believe his Gemara... Excuse me, is a classic example of honesty, <coughs> excuse me, integrity, and what the Torah expects from us and how we're supposed to act. And I believe that it's a very interesting Gemara because many times, <coughs> excuse me, you'll find people doing things that are very, very interesting. <coughs> excuse me, as a employee. You're obligated to work for your boss, and you're obligated to discharge your responsibilities as best you can. I remember I once had a woman who was working for the Shmuz, excuse me, and at a certain point she was davening Mincha. There wasn't a nice, she's davening Mincha, and I'm watching her daven a very nice long Mincha. And then I realized it's so wonderful that she's davening Mincha on my dime. And I realized something very, very interesting. I am a religious Jew, and I'm all in favor of davening, and I'm certainly in favor of davening mincha. It's a wonderful thing. But don't go do it on my cheshben. I raise money, this is stuck of money, and if you're going to daven a nice long mincha on the shmuz's budget, that's not exactly considered righteous. And I think it's a very interesting illustration of the way the Torah views honesty. If you work for a person, you're obligated to discharge your responsibility to do your job with integrity, with honesty, to an extent that's well beyond what accepted practice now, what's accepted in society. The Torah obligates us to fully take care of your responsibility. That means to say, there, if you're given a break, there's a time for break. If you're not given a break and you're going to take time for yourself, if you're going to do other things, if you're going to be involved in anything other than what you should be doing, well, guess what? That's called stealing. And it is a very difficult thing. I want you to know, when I learned this in the Sil Shasharim, 
from that point on, I was maybe 20, 21, I said I will never work for the, by the hour again. And from that time on, I was very, very careful. If I have to do any work, I'm going to do it for the job, pay me for the job, I don't want to be paid by the hour. Why? Because it's a very, very grave responsibility. If I'm paid for the hour, now again, there's normal work practices, and certainly it's understood that there are breaks, and what's ever considered normal convention is what you're supposed to do. But the bottom line is, when you're on the boss's clock, you're on the boss's clock. And I think it's a very important thing to understand in terms of how the Torah views morality, and how the Torah views ethics, and how the Torah views what's considered honest and yosher. And I can think of countless examples of this, but I want to share with you something I find very, very eye-opening. Very recently, there was a Target gift card, and it was publicized on some of the popular Jewish sites that there was a mistake on the Target site, and they were selling $500 gift cards for $14.99. Now, that's quite a profit, because if you buy a number of $500 gift cards for $14.99, it's a pretty, pretty impressive margin. And of course, it went up on one of these sites, and everyone started rushing to do it, rushing to do it, rushing to do it. In the end, Target didn't honor it, but here's the point. I have a very simple question. What do you think Hashem wanted you to do in that situation? Let's even say it's not Gezel, because it probably wasn't. It, let's call it Taos Akum. Now, Taos Akum, <coughs> mistake that a guy makes, you're not supposed to be nana from it. There's no halach of stealing. But <coughs> as the Mephoshim and Shulchan Aruch say, if you do it, I've never seen anyone benefit from it. But it could be it's not Gezel. But here's the big question. What do you think Hashem wants you to do? Do you think Hashem's saying, listen, this year I was going to let you make $250,000, but that was assuming that you were bright enough to hop every Kanech and to buy the Target gift cards, even though you knew it was a mistake, and go there on the site quickly, grab a hundred of those gift cards, and rack up a nice profit? Somehow, I don't think so. But you see, this thought process, and the thought process that has to bracket any decision that we make, really is a simple one. It's who pays my bills. If I accept the fact that on Rosh Hashanah, Hashem decrees how much money I am to make, that means I accept the fact that Hashem decrees how much money I'm going to make. And the only question I have to ask myself is, how does Hashem want me to earn my daily keep? Now, one thing I see, <clears throat> that I'm, if I'm working for someone every minute of that day, what's ever considered normal business practice, I'm obligated. And if I do something else, a big mitzvah on the boss's dime, it's considered a vera. <clears throat> it's considered stealing, it's considered a vera, it's not a mitzvah. So what I see is the way the Torah views honesty, ethics, <clears throat> the way the Torah wants me to act. And one thing I see, Hashem doesn't want me to be dishonest, doesn't want me to act in a way that smells and is inappropriate, <clears throat> and when you hear about great opportunities to profit, and you realize that they're really cheating, stealing, and lying, come on, what do you think? Do you think that's the way Hashem wants you to earn your living? <clears throat> do you think that's the way Hashem wants you to earn? And if you're not quite sure that I'm right, I want to share with you one of the greatest observations that I think ever can be shown about ethics and morality. <clears throat> Yaakov Avinu, the Ishtam, the Yoshev Olim, works for Lovan. He says, I'm going to work for seven years for Rachel. And those seven years, he slept in the field every night. He ate ice at night to keep himself up. He didn't return one dead animal. Lovin went from being a regular guy to being an extraordinarily wealthy person. <clears throat> his sheep, his flocks increased 
incredibly, and Lovin was gifted with a tremendous amount of wealth because of Yaakov's incredible labor, his industrious labor, and to the extent that he barely took a break, was the most incredible worker, working day in, day out for seven years. After the seven years are up, he goes to marry Rachel. <clears throat> he wakes up in the morning, he he was duped, he was fooled, he goes rushing to Lovin, what did you do? You fooled me. <clears throat> Lovin said, in our place, that's the way we do things, we don't give the older <clears throat> before the younger, Here's the deal. Finish these Sheva Brachas, you'll marry Rachel, and then work another seven years for Rachel to pay off that debt. And in fact, that's what the Torah says, that Yaakov worked Sheva Shanim Acherus seven other years. Now Rashi, by the way, what do you mean seven other years? Of course seven other years. He worked seven years, he was fooled, instead of getting Rachel, he got Leah. Now he's working another seven years for Rachel, who he thought he was getting. So obviously the Sheva Shonim Acheres, the seven other years. Why is the Torah telling me there's seven other years? Explains Rashi, no. And that's what the Torah is telling us. The seven other years that he worked were identical to the first seven. The same integrity, the same honesty, and the same sleeping in the fields at night, the same incredible work ethic that he had during the first seven years, he had during the second seven years. Shonim Acheres, the second seven matched the first. And my friends, if you'd like to hear a Musa Shmuz in honesty, in integrity, that is it. Because he was duped, he was fooled. He worked seven years and that was a very inappropriate amount of time. And the Surah explains that that was the bride price. The bride price should have been a year, two years maximum. And when he negotiated with Lovan, he overstated the price because of his tremendous love of Rachel. And those seven years he worked for his beloved and he worked with such integrity, with such honesty, because it was Rachel, and it was worth it, and it was fine. So I understand why he worked with such diligence. But the second seven years, he wasn't supposed to work. He was fooled. He was duped. Lovin was a trickster. They made up Rachel, <clears throat> they said Rachel, and he tricked them. And these second seven years, he wasn't supposed to work. The first seven years, really, were tremendously overpriced. And the second seven years, Bechlau weren't supposed to be. How could he possibly <clears throat> work with the same diligence the same tremendous focus and effort as he did the first seven years. And would you like to know the answer to that question? <clears throat> the answer is because Yaakov Avinu's morality was not dictated by Lovan. His morality was dictated by Hashem. And I'm working for God. I'm here on this planet. I'm an Ever Hashem. There's a certain way that Hashem wants me to act in business. And this is the way I'm moral, I'm ethical, I keep my word, and I work very diligently. You may have tricked me, you may have duped me. I don't like you. You're not an honest person, but that doesn't change my responsibility to act, <clears throat> doesn't change my responsibility to be eth- ethical, and I think that is one of the greatest illustrations. I think <clears throat> Yosef is a tremendous, tremendous lesson. He signed every single document that crossed Mitzrayim. Why? Because all of his wealth belongs to Paro. He didn't have to sign everyone. There were plenty of people. No, I can't have administrators. <clears throat> I can't have audits because I don't trust the Mitzrayim, and my responsibility is to make sure that all of the wealth that's supposed to get to power was going to get there, and he sat there signing every document, I don't know how much time, hours a day, acting in a way that's very unbefitting, because that is my responsibility. And this is my boss, my job is to take care of his needs, my job is to make sure that his <clears throat> issues are taken care of, and Yosef was an incredible worker, and when you see this time after time, and when you read Allah <clears throat> and that just like if you eat tray food and you make a bracha, it's considered a bracha levatala, so too if you eat stolen food, it's a bracha levatala, but more than that, 
If you do a mitzvah on someone else's dime, you're stealing, and it's not a mitzvah, it's an avera. And that means if you're reading shaduchim when you're working for the boss, or you're typing out Torah columns while you're working for the boss, or even if you're listening to the shmooze while you're working for the boss, guess what? You'd better be very, very careful. Because if, if it distracts you, if it takes away your time, if it takes away your focus from your job, then it might well be stealing. It's not a mitzvah, it's an avera. Because the way Hashem wants us to act is to follow the Shulchan Aruch, <clears throat> honest, to be moral, to be ethical, and that steps outside the bounds of it. And I'd like to close with a story that I'm very fond of because it happened to my Rebbe, the Rosh Hashim and I just recently heard it, and I called Rabbi Chaim Schwartz today to verify the details of it, and basically here's the story. It was, <clears throat> it was the 1980s, and the yeshiva lighting was kind of old-fashioned, inefficient, and Rabbi Ginsburg, who was the executive director, wrote a letter to the state asking for a grant to put in new lighting. It was considered energy inefficient, and there were many energy efficiency acts, and there was much money granted. In any case, he worked hard on it, worked hard, and finally got a $75,000 grant to replace all of the electrical fixtures in the yeshiva. Now, in those days, it was quite a tidy sum of money, so with the check in hand, Rabbi Ginsburg then went looking for a contractor. He found a Hamish contractor from contractor, and the contractor did a very good job, replaced all of the fixtures, put in energy-efficient light bulbs, everything was fine, and he gave a bill to Rabbi Ginsburg to the yeshiva for $60,000. Rabbi Ginsburg was ecstatic. He just profited $15,000. Look, all the state was paying for it. He got a good deal from a, you know, another from contractor, so he saved the yeshiva money, so he went to the yeshiva and said, look I replaced all the electrical outlets, I did exactly what the state wanted, and I even, we profited on it, $15,000 excess, isn't that great? And the yeshiva said, yes, it's great, you have to return it and Ginsburg said, what do you mean? She said, you have to return it, the state gave us money for a grant for a reason, to replace electrical circuits to replace the, the fixtures we've done that, any extra money the state didn't give us to just spend we have to return it Ginsburg said, you can't return state money. It was granted. Rishiva said, you have to. Ginsburg said, I, I, you can't do it. It's not done. I'm not doing it. Rishiva said, fine. I'll do it. Fine. And Rishiva himself got on the phone. And he called the state agency, the environmental, I don't know, the electrical agency, whatever the agency was, he, the State Department of Energy. He calls up and he says as follows. Hello, my name is Rabbi Leibowitz. I'm the dean of the Rabbinical Seminary of America, and I would like to return a grant check to the state. Now, the clerk who answered the phone was named David, a young fellow, 26, 27 years of age, and the clerk said, I'm sorry? He said, my name is Robert Leibowitz. I'm the dean of the Rabbinical Seminary of America. We were granted a, a, a grant from the state, and I'd like to return it. And David said, why do you want to return it? So, we should have explained. We granted this money to put in new fixtures, we replaced all the fixtures for $60,000. There's $15,000 left. I'd like to return it. David was silent. He had never heard this before. He said, hold on a minute, please. He went to his supervisor. And he said, there's someone on the phone, claiming to be a Rabbi Leibowitz, uh, and wants to return money. What do we do with it? The supervisor said, said, I don't know. I don't know what to do. So <clears throat> David goes back on the phone and says, Rabbi Leibowitz, listen, I appreciate your sentiments. <clears throat> let, let me do this. I'll, I'll call you back tomorrow. Let me see what to do with it. Fine. The next day, David calls back, and the Rashiva gets on the phone, and David says, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I, I asked, I asked, I asked, in the history 
of the state. No one ever remembers anyone ever returning a grant. <clears throat> There's no precedent. We don't know what to. I don't I have no idea what to do with the money. So please keep it. She said, "I can't keep it. It's not my money. It's the state's money." David said, "Please keep it." <clears throat> she said, "I can't keep it." So David said, "Fine. Listen, I'll tell you what. I'll call you back in two weeks." <clears throat> in any case, David didn't call back in two weeks. Rishiva called back and said, I need to speak to the, this person. He got David in front and said, David, I'm sending the check. I'm writing out the state. I don't know what you're going to do with it. You have to figure it out, but I'm returning the money. And in fact, they hung up the phone, and Rishiva wrote the check out to the state, mailed it, and kachav. Okay. 20 years later, there's a major move in the governor's office because his staff want to pass a bill. Now, the bill was a little bit shady, but it would allow the state to take money off the top and skim it to, to different things. And it was clearly not exactly kosher v'yosher, but it wasn't the kind of thing that anyone's going to jail for. And all the staff are debating, debating back and forth, and finally the governor vetoed the bill. He said, I will not do this. It doesn't pass the Rabbi Leibowitz test. And the staff asked him, um, what is the Rabbi Leibowitz test. He said the most honest man in New York State is Rabbi Leibowitz. He would not do this, and therefore I will not do it either. And his staff said, who's Rabbi Leibowitz? First of all, you're not Jewish. You don't have a rabbi. Who's this Rabbi Leibowitz? He's the most honest man in the state. And 20 years ago, I was a young clerk, and I received a call from a Rabbi Leibowitz who wanted to return money, and I said, we don't know what to do with it. He said, I have to do it. It's on my money. And I realized he's the most honest man that I've ever met, and since that time, I've used him as my hero. I've used him as my model. If Rabbi Leibowitz wouldn't do it, I won't do it. And David Patterson, the governor of New York, said, we're not going to do this measure. We're not going to pass this bill. Someone from that meeting calls up the yeshiva. And this is now 2010. The yeshiva Zetzal was no longer alive. And Rabbi Chaim Schwartz answers the phone. And it's a staff member from Albany calling and says, I just want you to know, I was in a meeting with the governor, with Governor David Patterson, and he's talking about Rabbi Leibowitz. Rabbi Leibowitz being the most honest man in New York. <clears throat> I don't know what he's referring to, but uh, can I speak to this Rabbi Leibowitz? And Rabbi Leibowitz is no longer alive. Okay, well, I just want you to know, the governor was speaking about him. Thank you very much. Rabbi Schwartz hangs up the phone and goes to Rabbi Ginsburg and asks him, what's going on? And Rabbi Ginsburg told him that 20 years earlier, <clears throat> David Patterson was the young clerk who the Shiva spoke to. And I believe what this story illustrates is what ethics and morality is all about. It doesn't matter whether someone knows about it, someone finds out about it, there's a way that Hashem wants us to act. And that's to be moral, to be ethical, and whether I get credit for it, I don't get credit for it. If this money is intended for me, I accept it. If not, not. If I'm working for somebody else, my obligation is to be honest to the nth degree. And that is what we see the Gedolim do, and that's what we see the Ovos do, and that's what Hashem wants for us. And that should be a clarion call, an image of what we should aspire to in ethics and morality and what it means to be honest. And now what I'd like to do is open the floor to questions. Um, Baruch Hashem, I didn't go too long today because my voice went out. But please feel free to raise your hand if you have questions, or you can type the questions in. Um, uh, please feel free to type the question in. Um, I think your take on how an employee is taking advantage is a little harsh. Most decent employers understand that even the best employees need breaks from time to time. I think that a righteous employer, especially a from one, would understand that. After all, it's not the job performance that isn't the job performance the most important thing. <clears throat> Are they getting the job done? Now, again, I, I didn't say this enough times. 
in the time of the Gemara, things were different than now. Now there are certain work conditions that are considered very different than it was then, and there's certain normal expectations today that are considered normal work environment, normal work conditions. So, for instance, it's expected an employee is going to have a lunch break and two breaks during the day. An hour break on an eight-hour shift is considered normal. That was not the time of the Gemara. The time of the Gemara is very different than today. So you're right. In our day and age, if you take a lunch break and you take two 50-minute break, it's fine. But if you're not entitled to that break and you decide to do something during that break that you shouldn't be doing, that's called stealing. Meaning, whatever your contract says is what you're obligated to do. If you're contractually allowed an hour break, so you're contractually allowed an hour break, you don't have to, <clears throat> that's a given, that's understood. If you're not allowed that break, that's called stealing. So again, the morality and the rule, the rules are determined by the contract, by what's done and what's accepted in society, but whatever that understanding is, is the rule. And that's the law, and that's what I have to obey, even if I don't like it, and even if I don't, I don't like my boss, and even if my boss is a creep, and even if my boss steals, and even if my boss is not a nice guy, that doesn't obviate my obligation to be ethical, to be moral, and I think that's the point. But you're right, it was definitely different in the time of the Gemara, and it was not the type of environment that we have today. When you work for someone for the day, your whole day was considered towards him, and therefore the Gemara says many examples. You know, you put them from Kriyashma, if you're working for the, a man for the day, you don't even have to stay the whole benching. Because, again, the expectations were very different then than they are today. In our world, it's different. Yes, I, I agree completely. Um, okay. Did your employee who dominated a nice long minchah real take advantage of the shmooze? Was she a good employee? Did she get the job done? Um, so I appreciate your, your charity. It was stealing. It was stealing. I'm sorry. I was the employer. She was the employee. She was dominating when she was supposed to be working. Even if she got the job done, it's called gezel. It's stealing. With all due respect, she could have gotten a thousand jobs done. She could have gotten ten times the work done, but she's not allowed to do it. Now, I didn't go over and make a big deal, and I'm not a tough guy, and I'm going to fire you. But you have to understand something. And I only mention the point because, to me, it was glaring. It was absolutely not right. But let's say she's very efficient and, and she could get twice as much work done as someone else and therefore that's very nice, that's wonderful but if you're being paid by the hour you don't have a right to take time that you should be working and you know, well, but, but I'm very efficient that's great, so be very efficient and you know, if you want to go to your employer and say because I'm very efficient I would like to work less time I would like to get more pay, that's fine but whatever the contract agreement is is what the agreement is if you're not abiding by it then I got news here. It's not honest. It's not ethical. Even if you feel you're doubly productive and you're getting the job done, that's not what you paid for. You paid for the time. And you're right. By the way, as an employer, I am looking for someone to get the job done. And I have many employees, many times I've had situations where I've said, and I have one woman in particular, who I told her, I don't care how much time you work. She's very efficient, very reliable. She's more, more conservative than I was. And I said to her, I don't care. In our situation, you could work the hours you want, you just get the job done. If that's the agreement, then her obligation is just to get the job done. But that wasn't the agreement with this situation. The agreement was she clocks in by the hour, she was paid by the hour, and she was dominating mincha during the time that she was being paid. I don't know how to say that other than that that is called, to my understanding anyway, it's considered not appropriate, not right, it's considered stealing, I hate to say it, but that's uh, that's the way it is. Um, Okay, um, 
I would hate to work for you very insensitive. <laughs> what can I tell you? Um, what can I tell you? Now, for the record, again, you could set up many different work environments with people. And I don't tell you that every job is that way. But especially young employees who are working by the hour, there's an understanding of what's supposed to be done. And, you know, I, I get it. We're, we live in America where everything is acceptable, everything is bendable, and, you can, you know, you, you make copies on the boss's uh, machines, and you, you make phone calls on the boss's time, and it's all good. But guess what? It's not Yosher. It's not right. It's not straight. It's not Emmis. Um, now, if you're a, again, if you contracted for a job, and the job is to get the job done, and you got the job done, that's great. And many positions are that way. Many positions are not clock in, clock out. Usually clerks, beginning workers, you know, in the beginning stages of work, it's paid by the hour, and then it's by the hour. Typically, as you get better and you're considered greater skills and greater more value to the company, you'll work a, you know, you'll take care of your job. But again, if your expectation is you work at 9 o'clock, and you show up daily at 9.30, guess what? It's not right. I'm sorry, you may call me mean, you may call me wrong, but that's exactly what I think the Torah expects from us, and that's exactly what ethics is. Now again, if the boss says, I don't care what time you come, just get the job done, then that's what your job is. But if the boss says, "Uh uh-uh, the expectations are that you're here at 9 o'clock, are you two minutes after 9, no one's getting bent out of shape, but you show up regularly at 9.30, I don't know how to tell you, other than that, sorry, that's, um, it ain't right, (laughs) it ain't right. Okay, um, please feel free to raise your hand to ask a question. Rachel Goldstein, you have the floor. Go ahead, please. Um, so, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. I'm looking for an exemption. What about uh, taxes and health insurance companies where the government just keeps raising them, taking advantage of the, you know, nobody has any power about that. Health insurance companies keep raising their premiums and deductibles, and nobody can do anything about it. Are we obligated, like, what, if there's ever a way, like, they, they don't want to cover a medication or something, like, and if and there's a way, let's say, around the, by not being 100% truthful. <sighs> okay, so here's a, here, let's give a good example. Let's say I, I make a million dollars a year, and I own my own business, and so I could be a little bit not truthful, and that will save me $200,000 in taxes. Now, is the government entitled to another $200,000? And what are they going to do with that money? Are they going to spend it on welfare and throw it out? Why should I pay another $200,000? Am I entitled to just lie a little bit, to just shade the truth a little bit? What do you think the answer is? No, but why are they entitled to that? I don't know. Don't live in this land. Go live in Iran. Go live in Syria. <clears throat> Go live in North Korea. But if you're living in this land, there are laws of the land. And laws of the land, you have to pay tax. Now, you have a right to vote that person out of office. <clears throat> you have a right to vote Republican, not Democrat. You have a right to do anything that's within the legal laws of the land. But the laws of the land are that if you make X amount of money, you have to pay X amount of taxes. You don't have a right to steal. You don't have a right to lie. But it's really much more than that. Here's the question you have to really ask yourself. On Rosh Hashanah, Hashem decrees how much money I'm going to make. Is that before taxes or after taxes? It's like this. Schaefer, this year you're going to make a million dollars, but you're going to pay taxes? Federal, state, and stuff. Forget Then it's off. Then you're going to make uh, $50,000. Forget it. I don't think so. 
When Hashem decrees how much money you're going to make this year, that's after federal, state, and local taxes. Hashem knows the tax code better than the IRS does. And Hashem expects us to have ethical and moral. And Hashem provides for us. So if something is a legal loophole, take it, grab it. You should do it, absolutely. But if it's not legal, if it's shady, if it's wrong, if it's the kind of thing you get caught, you go to jail for, well, guess what? It's called lying, stealing, cheating, and I don't know what to tell you. You know, maybe you can find people to tell you it's okay, but I don't think the Torah says so. Okay. Oh, I am sorry to be so harsh. Maybe find somebody who <laughs> say it's mutter. The shiva will tell you to say it all the time. Find a posing. Maybe you find somebody who say it's mutter. I, I don't see how it's, it's permitted, but maybe you can find somebody who will tell you it's okay. Because what can I tell you? <clears throat> Let me let you in on a secret. Hashem has lots and lots of money. Lots of money. Hashem owns diamonds, diamond mines in South Africa, real estate in Manhattan. <clears throat> Hashem owns oil in Saudi Arabia. Hashem wants one thing, for us to act ethical and moral, and then Hashem provides. Our job is, to, again, if there's a legal loophole and you don't have to pay taxes, don't pay taxes. You're a fool if you do. <clears throat> but if you're obligated to pay and just lying is going to get you off, guess what? That's called lying. It's stealing. It's cheating. You, all you're doing is you're saying, Hashem, I'll take care of this one. I can't trust you to provide for me. I, I got to do this one because, you know, Hashem, you're good. But like when it comes to Parnassah, uh, I got to take care of myself because nobody's going to help me out. So, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Pull one over on the people that are pulling one over on I'm you. So, I'm sorry, what? Like, just say it again? You just want to pull one over on the people that are doing it to you. But. <clears throat> so again, I, I think the, the classic example of that is Lovin and Yaakov. And Lovin pulled one right on Yaakov. But that, you, the point is, Lovin doesn't determine my morality. I don't work for Lovin. I work for God. He's a cheat. He's a liar. That doesn't matter. If I'm obligated by morality, by ethics to do this, that's what I have to do. If I don't have to, then you're right. Then I'm off the hook. That's a question that, that you could deal with and you could you, you could speak to someone and ask. But if you're obligated to do it, you're obligated to do it. I understand. Okay, sorry. Okay, okay. Uh, sorry. I, I wish I had a hetta. I wish I could make it all permitted. And let, but um, unfortunately, I don't have, I don't know of any that I know of. Okay, Devorah Jacobs, you have the floor. Is it Avrami? Is it Devorah? Who has it? You have it, I think. Talking permitted, it says. Oh, you gave me permission. Huh? I gave you permission. Oh, once and Edward, I gave you permission. Okay, hold on. Let me shut that one, uh, the other person off then. Today we're talking on Devorah uh, Jacob, and we're going to hear from Edward. Edward, let's hear something grisetatic. Let me hear something meaningful. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I missed Shmuel the last time, so you better oh. catch Pilkis uh, this time. I hear you. I'm like a groupie is following Rolling Stones. I <laughs> saw your Vimeo about Hanukkah, so I have a question. Okay. Um, and so in your story, you mentioned that the Jews become like Greeks, even more than Greeks. And um, I have an observation. Why Jews take not, the, not taking the best from Greek culture, let's say physical bodies? I bet if you go to your congregation, you see only 1-2% Jews look like Greeks athletes. <laughs> it's probably boys and girls under 20 and not married. <laughs> <laughs> so, but here is my question. One lady, you said, was disgusted with the Jews doing nothing about this uh, uh, revolt, whatever. And she went to with her baby on the roof, circumcised her baby, screamed at Greeks, you will not uh, succeed, and then jumped from the roof. Right? So the first impression I had, OMG, such a nice, strong-spirited Jewish lady, symbol of toughness of Jews, etc. 
Then I start picture her on the roof with a knife, and I bet it wasn't handheld knife used by cook at five-star mission in a rest restaurant. This probably was potato knife. No anesthesia, and she probably cut the whole piece, that circumcised, and then jumped, jumped from the roof. Uh, the picture is pretty gruesome, and my question is, how many commandments she broke? So she killed the baby, she committed suicide, and uh, should this lady be not an admiration? So, <laughs> you, like so Edward, you're 100% right. If there was an alternative, meaning if she could have lived, and, and you know, then you're right. If she could have given a brismila to a, a child and lived, and you're but the problem was the cities were taken over by Antiochus's men. And there was no way that you could do a brismila and actually then expect to be alive anymore. It was basically it was it was that's what it was. It was suicide. So you're right. She jumped off the roof. It's normally not accepted, but she knew she'd anyway be killed. So she didn't wait for them to torture her. She killed herself earlier. Is it 100% the right thing? I don't know, but one thing for sure, it was not just like a woman jumping off the roof. It was because she knew that she'd be immediately, summarily hung with her baby around her neck, and rather than having that happen, so she jumped off, and Allah is, by the way, that you're allowed to do that. If you're going to be tortured, and you know that you're likely not going to be only to torture, you're allowed to do that in that situation. She was going to be killed anyway, so that, uh, in that situation it was allowed. But okay, but um, good, I thank you for visiting but I hope the rest of the, the shmuz you got the, the lesson out of, even though you had the, the cash on this point. Uh, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, thank you. Okay, good, good. Okay, let's go back to, um, well, okay, Devorah Jacob, do you want to, is your hand up? Uh, you have the opportunity to talk, I believe. Let's try it now. Devorah Jacobs, the name here is Devorah Jacobs. You now have the ability to talk. If you're not going to talk, I'll lower the hand, but... I'm going to disable talking. Can you can you hear me? Are you trying to speak? Okay, let me disable talking, and we'll give it to someone else. Let me just see if anyone has any question. Uh, um, okay, so I see somebody is a little bitter, and I don't mind answering bitter people. And but I'm gonna I'm gonna read the question. What a joke! We live in a community with so many people ripping off the government, not paying taxes, Medicaid for it, etc., and you're worried about the 12 employees stealing from the employer. Okay. <clears throat> I agree with you wholeheartedly. Medicaid fraud is stealing. Ripping of the government is stealing. It's all wrong, all wrong, wrong, bad, evil, wrong, 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 wrong. It's also wrong if you're making $12 an hour and you should be working to not work. They're all wrong. Because other people do things that are even worse wrongs doesn't make this better. That's called, you know, that's called man-made morality. Well, look how many people are stealing so much big money, I could steal little money. I don't know, maybe. That's not the Torah that I grew up with. <clears throat> the Torah that I grew up with, the Torah that I learned, the Torah my Rebbe taught me is we're moral, we're ethical, and it doesn't matter. If people are stealing, that doesn't make it permitted for me to steal. Is it right to rip off the government? Absolutely wrong. It's fraud, it's gazel, it's stealing, it's wrong. And if other people do it, it's still wrong. But if other people do it, it doesn't permit me to do things, well, my things are less wrong. I'm only doing petty theft, and they're doing major larceny, so I'm sorry. It's all wrong. No matter how big, no matter how, how much, no matter how fraudulent, it's still wrong. So you're right. It's absolutely unacceptable. But just because other people are doing things that are unacceptable doesn't permit for me to do little th crimes. They're all wrong, and it's something we all have to think about, all have to work on, and be aware of. So again, I, I guess it's it. 
hit a raw nerve, but whatever the case. Okay, <clears throat> um, why not start with the big crooks in our community? So ladies and gentlemen, let, let me be very clear over here. I am not the sheriff. I am not the constable. I was not appointed chief of police. I can't go after anybody. I'm a rabbi. My job is to present to you ethics and morality as the way I see it. Is it right to steal? No. Is it right to steal a little bit of money? No. Is it right to steal a lot of bit of money? No. It's wrong, no matter how you slice it. Should you steal big money? No. Should you steal little money? No. But one doesn't obviate the other. Should I go after the big crooks? You're right. And if, by the way, it could be this is the first schmooze you've come to, and you don't hear when I go after the big crooks and Enron and cheating on taxes. Okay, so you listen to other schmooze and listen to schmooze number six. It's not Ganevich Stick. Listen to many business ethics 145. You'll see I go after the big games also. But that's the point. It's not only, in other words, meaning I can't just say to myself, look, I don't steal big money, so I'm okay. I don't steal big money, that's great. But I have to also not steal little money. If I steal a dollar, it's stealing. Now, is it worse to steal $100,000? Maybe we could debate it, but both are wrong. So if I were the constable, if I were the sheriff, if I were the chief of police, i go after the big crooks first. Maybe. You're right. I guess could be. But that isn't the schmooze tonight. The schmooze tonight is focused on the fact that all of us have to be aware. And, he, and I forget that I picked on the poor woman. She was a great person. I was very fond of her. But I, and I didn't say anything to her, but it's a moral point that I think bears understanding. And I just hope that you'll be broad enough to recognize that people who steal are wrong. But if they do things that are wrong, that doesn't allow me to steal, even though I'm only stealing a little bit, and compared to what they're doing, I'm doing so little, that's both wrong. It's wrong for them to steal a lot. It's wrong for me to steal a little. It's all wrong, and one wrong doesn't permit another wrong, smaller or larger, so, all right, I think that's the point. Um, um, okay, <clears throat> here's a very good question. Was the Shiva Tzal's approach considered a level of Hasidus? Is that expected from us? So, <clears throat> I can't answer that question. It's a good question, because um, what he said was, <clears throat> this money was earmarked by the state for a particular cause, meaning the state granted money for energy efficiency. In other words, meaning the lightning fixtures were considered inefficient, and the state <clears throat> allocated budgeted money for more energy-efficient fixtures. Once that money was used up, the Rishiv Zetzal felt that that money was used up, and now the $15,000 would be nice to pocket, but <clears throat> we're not entitled to it. What's the din? I don't know. <clears throat> Maybe you're right. It could be that it was a Midas Chasidus, because there's an argument to say that they allocated $75,000 for it. That's normally what it would cost. But Rabbi Ginsburg found a way of getting it done for less, so that was his, you know, his chap, his, you know, his bright clever way of, of doing it, saving money. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's me to see this, maybe not. But it's a beautiful story, and it's a beautiful example of ethics. And when David Patterson became governor, for 20 years he remembered that and kept it in his image, kept in his mind the most honest man I ever met. So, what can I tell you? It's a Kiddush Hashem, it's how we should act. <clears throat> is that the situation? Every situation it, it pays to ask, and you should ask Shiloh, you should ask regularly, because again, it's very hard to know until you're in the actual situation. But again, I think it's a beautiful story. Um, <clears throat> if my workplace didn't take off taxes, am I to report it? Yes. Yes. If your workplace didn't take off taxes, that doesn't obviate you from paying taxes. I, I, I don't know how to say that. I mean, the answer is yes. <clears throat> um, no, no, let me qualify that. Speak to your tax preparer. I'm not a... 
I'm not really fluent in tax code. I don't know the, the law, but it would seem to me that the answer is yes. Just make sure that you find a tax preparer who understands what you're looking for. If the U.S. tax code says, I pay, I pay. If there's a legal loophole, I want the legal loophole. The first time when I was a young young married and I did my taxes and I, I spent one hour, it took me one hour to explain to the person what I wanted to do. I want to pay every penny I'm obligated, not a penny more. If it's a legal loophole and legitimately we can write it off, I don't want to pay it. But if it's not legal, I don't. I want to pay it. But we have a leg to stand on. We could argue. We could. I don't care what we could argue. Is it right or is it not? Now, again, there's certain gray areas, and you have every right to say that within the tax code, this is acceptable. And if, in fact, it would stand up in a court of law, and if, in fact, it's legitimate, so it's a legitimate loophole, and you should use it. And there are many times when the IRS acts too strictly, meaning the tax code says X. They interpret it their way, and the truth is many fine you know, lawyers will tell you that that's a misinterpretation and the IRS doesn't have a right to do it. You have every right in that case, if it's considered within the legal rights of interpretation, you have every right to say that's not necessarily the interpretation, and if it would stand up in court, 100% go for it. But that's the point, would it stand up in court? <coughs> so, if in fact your employer doesn't take off taxes, again, i got to share with you, I don't believe, again, you speak to your tax preparer, you find out what the code is, but I believe that that does not obviate you from paying taxes. Um, one of my daughters, by the way, she teaches piano, cash business. People pay her in cash. She reports every penny, every penny. She first gives MISER, pays taxes on it, and everything is recorded. I'm, I'm extremely proud of it because that's, <coughs> excuse me, that's exactly what the Torah wants from us. That's exactly how we're supposed to act. If I'm obligated to pay it, I pay. <coughs> if I'm not obligated to pay, I don't. Okay, <coughs> so before I end, uh, I lose my voice. <coughs> so I just want to mention, um, if you have not yet gotten a copy of the 10 <coughs> really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, <coughs> please go to theschmooze.com and you could go on the banner. <coughs> you click on the banner and you'll be able to order it there. <coughs> if you order the uh, copy now, you'll also get the audio book, the ebook, and the as well as Marriage Transformation Boot Camp. I thank you for joining, and I wish you a good Shabbos. See you next week. Mitzvah